This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM, KGVO. Missoula's News and Weather Station. Hey, welcome everybody. It is the Thursday and final talk back of this week. Uh, well, welcome to Talk Back this morning, brought to you by Phillips Janitorial. Well, they offer residential and commercial cleaning. Their powerful steam extraction method brings tired and dirty carpets right back to life. And no job is too big or too small. For a free estimate, call 260-6617. Also brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Come on by for all your New York favorites. They've got New York cheesecake and lox and cannolis and, of course, lots and lots and lots of fresh bagels located out on North Reserve. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, here we are, and uh, it, it is the Thursday edition of TalkBack. Nick Christensen is in his assigned place right over there. I just know it. I see him. He's right there. <laughs> Good morning. Hi, Nick. <laughs> hello, hello. All right, joining us here in the studio, the one and only uh, Dr. Peter Kolb uh, from MSU Extension and, of course, also uh, the University of Montana He's the hybrid, if you will. <laughs> there you go. Go Cats. Uh, good morning. <laughs> oh, well, that's all the time we have today, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> all right. Now, you brought, ooh, something smells really good in here. So what, what, did, you, what did you bring with you today? All right. Well, I mean, I figured even now, though... That, we used to be on Facebook Live and people right. would be able to see, but we don't now. So we're going to have to be right. descriptive. The radio is the theater of the mind. Go right. ahead. Right. Well, you have prepared everybody for some discussion about volcanoes and we'll get to right. that yes. but yes um i've gotten a lot of questions about uh, the forestry minutes where i talked about uh incorporating conifer needles into baked goods and mm-hmm. cookies and a lot of people have asked me what exactly how do you do that so my uh, uh wonderful wife robin uh who is the creative genius behind all of this when i mentioned that you could use conifers for this um, we, we did a taste test and then she has very creatively created, um, Christmas cookies that incorporate, incorporate conifer needles into them. Cool. Um, and, uh, um, so I want to grab a tree. Okay. I'll grab a tree. tree. All right. I got a tree. Grab I a tree okay. and take a bite. So we're going to do a taste test here. Oh, oh my gosh. It's yeah. on live. So they have not had a chance to try these cookies. No. Um, yeah, just, just so you so, know, there's a little bit messy. So here, I'm gonna, I got to keep it. Clear. Well, it's you know, it depends on the user. Some are pretty tidy, and some are not. So, <sighs> so you know, give me your. So both uh, Peter and Nick have taken a bite. And I'm crunching right now. So I want to get a, a, a first, you know, blind reaction to to these uh, conifer cookies, if you will. And uh, you know, some of you uh, folks, sugary. Might- some of you might remember Yule Gibbons. Uh, you know, he was the naturalist who advertised for grape nuts. And he's always started his, his advertisement with, uh, this is a pine tree and many parts are edible. Uh, so that, you know, that was back in my youth. Uh, so that, you know, right, right after the dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> hey, so, I'm do, older you, than uh, you, dude. <laughs> yeah. Incidentally, Yule happened to pass away from yes. an ulcer, you know, so which was a little bit of a running joke. But so what, what's your impression of these cookies? Actually, they're very tasty. You don't taste the tree until the aftertaste, I notice, too. So when, once you're chewing and tasting it, but it, it does have that little after effect to it. No, it's it, good, though. You, you, you can tell that there's a, a different kind of ingredient going on here. And it does kind of 
once you get it in your mouth, it begins to kind of rotate through uh, all, all the taste buds and senses and kind of go up to your brain a little bit. Now, so. that sounds like someone who's coming from a wine tasting panel. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's such a snobby. A slight essence of oak followed by pomegranate and how then the, the chocolate. How about this? Tastes day pretty dang good. How's that? <laughs> all right. So, yes. um, you know, uh, so I brought uh, um, needles from our now these uh, are these are actual needles from a tree i, mean, I collected them this morning right right before mm-hmm. i came here okay. and they were above dog height so you're safe <laughs> um <laughs> now, uh, we live in a forested property right so um i'm gonna have you guys uh, really quickly like i said this is our martha stewart moment all right here we go um so <laughs> they're gonna try ponderosa pine and ponderosa right. pine has the very long four inch needles okay and, yeah, just, I mean, they're not toxic. Uh, I imagine if you ate uh, uh, 10 pounds of it, you'd, you'd really be distressed. But uh, so as a, as a spice. That's tangy. Sour, yeah. So that, that, that's ponderosa pine, the, the, the longer okay. uh, needles. All right. Okay. You got to cleanse my palate with yeah. water, right? I mean. You, well, we take gotta... a bite of your cookie and, you know. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, now, now the, 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 the cookie is flavored by one of these. Well, correct. correct. You have to identify which one it is. Okay. So right. take a needle. Take that. No, no, not that one. Okay. <laughs> all right. I'll take a needle. All right. There we go. Just, and, just one off. Well, yeah. Yeah. Just and like just okay. yeah, or more and, and give that a try. I'm chewing a needle. So, and this is uh, this is Douglas fir needles. Mm-hmm. So, Douglas fir has needles that are about an inch long. Mm-hmm. Um, they're arranged on the twig, kind of like a, a bottle brush, right, a, right. a dish brush, mm-hmm. um, and you know they're they're slender, uh, slightly pointed. So, what are your thoughts of of those flavors? That are more of a punch. It's very, it's very robust. Mm-hmm. How about robust is a good word. Oh, God. Good, you know, you guys are diplomatic, word. you know. Uh, you know, I'd probably well, say, oh, my God. If I know. said it tasted great, people would think I was lying. I mean, I mean this, we're that, eating trees. There, there's a line from uh, one of cro- the Crocodile Dundee movie where he's got an iguana on a spit. Right. And, exactly right. You know, it says, uh, yeah, you can survive on this stuff, but it, it tastes, tastes like, like Right, exactly. <laughs> All right. So now that was number two. Here's number three. This is an Engelman spruce. Okay. Okay. And Engelman spruce, uh, grab a needle. So these are shorter needles. All right. They're very pokey. So people always ask me, how do you identify a spruce? And I said, well, give it a handshake, and if it bites you back, it's a spruce. Okay? They're, they're very, very pokey. And spruce is actually in the spring when ooh. the needles first ooh. come out. Ooh, that's my that's least favorite. I'll wrong. be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of like <clears throat> the stuff you s- scrub your toilet up with, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's very powerful. But in the <laughs> in the spring, the new growth is much milder. But spruce okay. is often listed uh, as one. Okay. Okay. So now we're going to go to Grand Fur. Okay. To, yeah, grab grab one on the end. It, so the newest needles are the ones at the very tip or the end of the branch, and right. those are going to be the most delicate, uh, have the best flavors, um, um, and you know not be quite as. Do I lift up chewy. my finger while I eat this? Then <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> okay, here we go. So and you know you can if you don't want to eat them you can take them and rub them between your fingers mm-hmm. and just smell oh, them. Oh, oh, now oh. you tell us. Great. Oh. <laughs> uh oh, poor Peter. That's not doing it for me. So, <laughs> that one had the most flavor, I guess Woo! we could say. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, which of these trees was wow. incorporated into, into the cookie? Into okay. the cookie. 
I think you're going to tell me it's a trick question, and all of them are. I, nope, I, nope. It's I, not I, a trick promise, question. I, think I, it was, I promise. It's I think, one, it, one I think it was the first one. I think it was the second one. Okay. Well, you're both failed. Uh, Great. Awesome. <laughs> nice. It was Just actually like the Grand Fur. Really? The last oh. one. The gra- oh, the, gra- the strongest oh, one. No. Wow. Right. And, and uh, uh, so I've given the recipe uh, to uh, Peter and Nick. Yeah, we got it. Here. Right. And uh, they're going to post it on you. And uh, the thing is, uh, the last one, Grand Fur, uh, so if you take the needle- needles and you just rub them and smell them, they right. have uh, a smell that's very similar to orange peel. And a lot of baking, mm-hmm. uh, yep. a lot of baking goods um, call for orange zest right. or lemon zest. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. So you only need uh, like a teaspoon or a tablespoon of these. Mm. And uh, my wife uh, has a, a coffee grinder that's specially that she uses only for grinding herbs. Mm. And she runs these through that to kind of grind them up a little bit, and just a little bit. So the cookies you had uh, had them in the dough. They're oh, sugar wow. cookie dough. Uh, with I'll a little bit of this, this in the dough. And then she makes a glaze for it, too. Uh, and so she sprinkles the uh, the chopped up needles on the top, uh, puts a sh- uh, little bit of a sugar glaze on there, and very briefly puts them in the oven just to melt the sugar. You don't want to cook the mm-hmm. needles that you put on top because mm-hmm. then they turn dark and they lose that nice green color. Mm-hmm. So it's not only gives a nice green sprinkle color to the cookies, it imparts uh, this uh, slightly <clears throat> orangey, slightly... Uh, what people call a Christmas smell mm-hmm. into the cookies, and uh, a, a lot of people really like those. Um, I have they're fun. one of my one of my favorite cookies now, but you know I'm a little twisted in that way. So well, I, w- I will tell you, my my wife is an amazing cookie baker. Anybody who works oh, here yeah. knows oh, yeah. about she. But we don't do anything. As quite as as natural as that. <laughs> well, now now you have the recipe. Your wife yeah, should uh, right, try right. to make them at home. All right. So. Well, and wow. and you know, a word of caution. Oh, so yeah. if you're collecting needles from ornamental trees and backyards and things like that, right. uh, people spray stuff on their trees, mm-hmm. uh, pesticides, etc. Uh, if you have lawn care products uh, to kill weeds, uh, those get absorbed by trees. So if you're going to collect needles um, for baking purposes, get them out of national forests, someplace where there is no uh, pesticide spraying going on. Right. We're up against a break, and uh, I just cleansed my palate with a little uh, a sip of ice water. And by the way, you guys need to go out and try this, all right? 721-1290 is our number, 1-800-568-5309. There is no extra credit. And there won't be a test. So we're going to come right back with more of Talk Back with uh, Dr. Peter Kolb right after this. Tax refund advance loans. at. Okay, that was fun. That was fun. All right, uh, Dr. Peter Kolb joining us in the studio. We're going to start calling you the cookie man now. No, no, that would be my wife. Okay, (laughs) the cookie lady. (laughs) And, and, you know, I was a little distressed. She... Stacked a bin full of cookies for you two guys. <laughs> and I said, you know, what is that out of my cookie stash? And, you know, uh, but uh, she's been, our, our house has been transformed into a bakery this last week. And, wow. You know, so there's racks of cookies everywhere. And uh, my wife has a tremendous uh, creative ability and talent to take really good recipes and improve them. So, ah. All right. Very well, let's, nice. let's, get, let's get to our callers. They're waiting very patiently. Larry is up first. Larry, good morning. You're on Talkback with Dr. Cole. Go ahead, sir. Good morning. I'm glad you got your nasal passages cleaned out there, Peter. That was good. So, hey, it, 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 it beats Navage. It certainly does. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Say, <laughs> so I'm glad uh, Dr. Cole's on today. I've, I was reading in the paper up in City Lake about the uh, machine they were using to create biochar. 
And I thought, uh, I wonder if that would work for the uh, poplar situation they've got down at the wastewater treatment plant. I realize they're a, a softwood, but if you could create some biochar, you could add that to the uh, echo compost uh, operation they've got over there and uh, perhaps uh, recover some money out of that by selling that as a soil amendment to landscapers and things like that. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that, Dr. Kolb. Well, I mean, biochar uh, is an interesting topic unto itself. Uh, so what biochar is when you take an organic compound and it can, uh, a lot of it is made out of uh, corn stover and things like that. And I often joke, I mean, you can throw dead animals in there and produce biochar <laughs> as well. Uh, but it is where you take an organic material and you heat it to a high temperature without oxygen so that it changes its chemical composition. I mean, you basically break down the organics and you are left with a almost pure carbon uh, lattice work uh, chemically and you drive off everything else. And so in wood, you know, we all know this as charcoal is a form of biochar. Um, and it, depending on what temperature and how long you cook it, there are different properties to it. Um, and biochar has the great ability to uh, hang on to the nutrients that most plants need. So biochar is negatively charged. So on the pH scale, 7 is neutral. Um, 14 is extremely alkaline. So around 10, it'll dissolve the skin off of you. That's uh, uh, Drano is very alkaline. Right. You know, on the opposite side of the spectrum is acidic. You know, so hydrochloric acid that will also take your skin off is a pH around 2.5. Uh, oranges are around five. Okay, so biochar is uh, has a pH of around eight. Um, and most of the cations, these are the nitrogens, phosphorus, potassium that plants need uh, for their physiological process are in a positively, uh, slightly acidic form. So when you add biochar to the soil, it holds on to these nutrients and eventually it bleeds them back. Uh, so initially you add biochar, it'll actually uh, kill your plants because it has a greater affinity for these nutrients. Um, it, once it's saturated, then uh, it feeds it back in the soil. And plus, biochar increases the soil's uh, ability to hold on to water. Cool. Uh, so it has tremendous potential. And being almost pure carbon, it is a, a method of taking organic matter and putting it into a long-term carbon storage. So biochar will last 500 to 1,000 years in the soil. It's, it's pretty inert. Nothing can eat it and wow. gain energy from it. Um, uh -huh. That said... There is a very limited market for this because uh, when you take a ton of woody material, uh, you might get 50 to 100 pounds of biochar off of it. Uh, so it's very labor intensive. It can be energy intensive. And so the machine you talked about is kind of an experimental prototype. Uh, the problem is to produce uh, biochar and sequester carbon with it, uh, it uh, runs on diesel fuel. Uh, you have to transport it to the site. And uh, the process, uh, so you start a fire, you, it, it kind of is, uh, have big fans that blow air onto it, so you get this extremely hot fire that becomes oxygen starved. And once the charcoal forms, it falls through a screen into a water bath where it's sifted out, and it requires an awful lot of water use, so something like 5,000 gallons an hour wow. to use. And this is kind of nasty water that comes out. I mean, it's organic, but <laughs> there's a lot of organic things that are nasty. So it's yeah. a prototype. Uh, actually, you can produce biochar just by uh, building a small 
uh, pile, lighting it on fire, and once it's reduced to a bed of coals, then you dump water on it, put it out. And those coals are then essentially a rough form of biochar. But remember, the biochar itself has no nutrients whatsoever. So you add that to the soil, because it has a greater affinity for the soil nutrients, it'll actually suppress plant growth until the biochar is saturated with nutrients. And then in the long term, it feeds it back into the system. So the best biochar actually has to be charged first. So there's thoughts of mixing it with manure or things like that. So it gets charged with nutrients. So when you add it to the soil, uh, it's not in that initial phase where it's sucking all the goodies out of the soil. So it's a very expensive process. And there is no standard for it. So one company might produce biochar and you have no idea what it's been charged with. Another one charges it with something else. And there are no real standards to it. So so biochar is a kind of an iffy thing right now, and there's no big market for it. Uh, golf courses use it to increase, uh, to reduce watering needs and things like that. So with the poplar plantation, actually, they're looking at, there's a possibility that some paper mills might be interested in it. Uh, so they're uh, chipping it is a little different than what we use out here. So there are some tests going on to see if we can actually sell that stuff to a paper mill. Larry, thanks. Uh, uh-huh. Anything else, Larry? Uh, yeah, I got more education than I really asked for there, but that was great. I appreciate right. it. So. Larry, Larry, thanks for the call, buddy. Appreciate <laughs> it. We're, we're going to come right back and get Len's call, and we have other lines open for Dr. Peter Kolb. Uh, in, in the 9 o'clock hour, we're going to start talking about this really this underwater volcano that people have been asking you about. So we're going to come right back with more of Talk Back right after this. AAA Plumbing and Heating. All right, crew, let's get her dug. Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember? No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811 brought to you by common ground alliance and we are back on talk back <clears throat> pardon me let's get right back to the phones and say good morning to len len good morning you're on with dr kolb hi sorry i can't eat cookies and as strange as i am i can't have fruitcake anymore oh. so i have to go without all that uh as far as uh, the trees and stuff goes the deer in our place love everything we don't use any kind of poison ever on our place we haven't for 37 years that we've lived here and we've got an oregon oregon grape right now in one of the flower beds that is stripped right down almost to the roots and uh, the same way with some of the little pine trees that are growing the deer love them right now the other thing i wanted to say is they're on the news they've been talking about the number of people killed on the highway damn it slow down we came out of lolo yesterday and before we even hit the 55 mile an hour speed limit coming south from there people were driving 70 and 80 miles an hour and in this kind of weather and it's no wonder people are getting killed and they don't want to i i 
you hear them talk nationally. They had a show about the the number of traffic deaths and everything on the roads, and not a mention of the speed limit. And you know, this speed limit here of 70 miles an hour, a lot of the people in the Bitterroot anymore are old people. We don't think that fast anymore. And we're trying to get out there with these speed demons and hope we get home alive. And I just say slow down for just well, I, I, keep yourself alive for the holiday. I will tell you this, Len. Uh, my wife and I went out to Victor to pick up a gift certificate, and it was getting dark and starting to snow, so I slowed down to about 55, right? And right. I, I had a line of people behind me that it just looked like we were about ready to play bumper cars, and they were so... When, when I, they went past me, finally got to the four-lane, and they, they went past me, and all I got was nothing but dirty looks. You know, you know? Yep. Well, you're lucky. Normally, you get the one finger salute. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was getting dark, so maybe I missed that. Well, that uh, one finger it's salute a shame, means you're... you know. I, I just... I don't understand people anymore that way. It, uh, they, they'd rather die than lose two minutes going where they're going. Yeah, just like the auto Anyhow, thanks. You All guys right. have a good holiday. Huh? Thanks, thanks, Lord. Well, you, you know that one finger salute means that you're number one. <laughs> oh, okay. Come on. So just, you got to take it that just way. But as long as you're not number one with a bullet, yeah. okay? And, yeah. and I can sympathize. <laughs> I actually had to drive to Butte yesterday morning uh, because the airline screwed up and my daughter was flying home. And rather than getting to Missoula, we finally were able to get her to Butte. Uh, otherwise, she would have been stranded in the airport for several days. And oh. Yesterday morning's drive to Butte was about as bad as I have ever experienced on Montana highways. It was glare ice with uh, soft snow on top. And Mm -hmm. I hear you about speeds and all of that. Um, You know, most people are pretty good drivers. But I'll relay the story. Uh, Years ago, I was plowing my driveway, and a vehicle came down the little hill that ends right at our driveway. And I saw him coming, and I thought, oh, he's going way too fast. So I uh, scooched my tractor out of the way as fast as I, I could. And sure enough, he ended up crashing into a big snow berm I had just made. And, and buried himself in there and got stuck. And so I kind of got out because I figured I'd help help pull him out. And he got out of his vehicle and I said, well, you're going a little fast, don't you think? And he goes, oh, I wasn't going too fast. I just couldn't stop. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, it's a true story. And so this is the thing people forget. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can uh, shift into four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive vehicles these days, and you can get going, uh, and you can go plenty fast. But when there's an, a situation where you need to slow down or avoid something, all of a sudden, hey, why am I not being able to stop? One of my favorite highway patrol guys years ago when I first started doing reporting uh, he said, there's an old phrase that we have at, uh, at the Montana Highway Patrol. Four-wheel we'll drive, drive does, does not mean four-wheel wheel stop. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, here, here's a recommendation. I mean, one thing I did with all my daughters is the first time they got into winter driving, I took them in their vehicle. We found a big, icy parking lot, and I had them do donuts and go fast and try and stop. So they learned how their vehicle handles on ice and snow. Good for you. I think Missoula... Public safety ought to have a <laughs> snow driving uh, right. practice area where people can nice. log in a time and go out there and learn how their vehicle behaves. Because learning how your vehicle behaves on the ice, that's not something you want to do in traffic. No. Yeah. Yes. Not, not the time to learn. It's time to. Yeah. Anyway, we're, we're going to take a, a quick break here. We'll come back after the top of the hour. And then we are going to shift topics and talk about this underwater volcano that when you first started introducing this topic, we had a lot of calls and a lot of interest in it. So we're going to definitely going to find out more about that as we continue in the next hour on Talk Back. 
This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's hour number two of the Thursday edition of Talk Back is underway, and it's brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery with authentic New York bagels actually flown in from New York. Uh, lots of pastries, too, from Little Italy can be found uh, on uh, Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery located on North Reserve. Also brought to you by Phillips Janitorial. Got some cleaning to do for the holidays for your business or your home. No job is too big or small for Phillips Janitorial, so... Uh, uh, book them right now. Get uh, get in uh, while you can. The two six zero six six one seven. The views and opinions expressed on Talkback are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, we're back on Talkback. Joining us here in the studio once again. Uh, we had we had our fun cookie half hour, which was great with with Doctor Peter Cole, and we appreciate. Thank you, your lovely wife, for helping out there. Oh yeah, they'll they'll go down in history as they'll be now known as Montana cookies. I like nice. it. I like it. Nick Christensen over there waiting to take your phone calls this morning, and we are shifting gears to talk about something pretty serious here, and that is an underwater volcano that uh, really has contributed to what's going on with our climate. So, real, real quick, can we do Kitty's app question? Oh yes, yes, Cause go she, ahead. Because she called and about right. a half hour ago. So real quick, before right we ahead. get into that, uh, okay. Kitty said, "If you were king for the day." And with the governor's new forest plan, which area of forest would be your first and second priorities and why? Oh, good God. Um, <laughs> there, that, that, it's a great question. Um, I would say all of them, um, honestly, because uh, you have different ownerships of forests. So uh, non-industrial, private, uh, you have now uh, – you have some corporate lands left that are, are owned to grow trees. Uh, Stoltz Land and Lumber still has uh, about 30,000 or, or more acres uh, with the main purpose of growing trees for the mill, though they're multi-purpose. They're also primary watershed for Columbia Falls, uh, and they have a plan to maintain water quality for that. And now there's also a lot of grizzly bears in them. Um, and you have federal forests that have a different mandate. Um, so uh, – Private landowners have overall done been doing a good job in reducing fuels in their forests. Uh, there's still plenty of private lands that need some work on that. Uh, state lands, of course, they're there to make money for the school trust fund, and uh, they they have some pretty good management on there, especially with fuels. Uh, federal forests are uh, difficult because they have multiple mandates, and where the Forest Service, I think, used to have a very very clear mission, what what they were there for. They have unfortunately become a chess piece in our in the national legislature. So depending what majority you have in the legislature, who you have in the White House, uh, it is going to shift the emphasis of the Forest Service because that's who their bosses are. And so imagine having the legislature as your boss. Uh, it's pretty hard to be consistent on any one thing. I, I will tell you just a quick aside. Um, back when uh, President Trump was in office and, uh, and, and, and Steve Daines had quite a bit of influence over forest procedures, uh, they, they had the, the head of the Forest Service actually at the Missoula Airport. I went and covered that. Uh, that press conference and what they wanted to do with, uh, you know, trying to harvest and do all all that uh, in that particular mindset. The representative from Senator Tester came and sat in the back and was taking frantic notes as to how he could combat that from his perspective. And so it just what, what you're saying is so true. Yeah, the politics involved with forest management uh, hurt everybody. 
um, because, of course, you have special interest groups with uh, special values. And the special, all of the opinions are important because forests are a multiple-use multiple entity. I mean, they are the primary watershed not only for Montana, uh, but the Rocky Mountains are the primary watershed for the United States. I mean, this is the origin of almost all of the rivers that we have, except for those, of course, on the East Coast. Um, so water quality is important. Uh, Montana is so lucky to have all of its original wildlife species, and this is due to the forest lands we have. But uh, forests are not this benign, self-governing entity. They go through massive boom and bust cycles, and they always have. And so it depends which end of that cycle you're on. Uh, so if you're on the bust cycle where mountain pine beetle is at a high, like it was in 2005 to 2014, and we had uh, about 7 million acres with 50% or more tree mortality, um, which now, of course, is nothing but firewood, uh, and we're getting these mega fires across these landscapes. So management is a way to moderate these boom and bust cycles out there. But in order, order to manage the fuels that are out there, you have to have a wood products infrastructure to do it. Otherwise, it's your tax dollars that are just going to pay people to do something that's going on perpetually. I mean, you thin and reduce fuels in five to ten years, they're back again. And so, you know, do you want this to be the big... A toilet hole where all of your tax dollars go into, or do you want to have a self-sustaining wood products industry that does the work we want to and makes money and employs people in the process and provides us with essential sources? I mean, think is of it, all the paper use. Think of all of the wood that is used in wood construction, and that wood is sequestering carbon, uh, therefore combating climate change. Think of all the cookies you can make. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there. So keeping a sustainable wood products infrastructure in place is key to managing these forests for all of the multiple values we want. All right. So let, let's jump in now and talk about this volcano. Uh, where was it? When was it? What happened? Okay. Well, volcanoes is a, a very complicated topic when it comes to the question of climate change okay. and atmosphere and all of that. Uh, so the Tonga volcano uh, occurred uh, early last year, almost a year ago. And it surprised a lot of people because it was an underwater volcano. Uh, so all that heat uh, from that blast, uh, normal volcanoes throw a lot of ash and, and pumice and other stuff into the air. This actually uh, had to go through a quarter mile of water first. Uh, so it boiled a lot of water, and uh, the Tonga volcano actually had a plume that blew materials 36 miles high in the atmosphere. Okay, so it, it was it was a pretty good one. Uh, now, on the range of volcanoes, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more as, uh, on what that all means uh, as we go on, it wasn't huge. I mean, so we had really huge megavolcanoes. Yellowstone was one of them in history. Mm -hmm. uh, Krakatoa in the late 1800s was one that created winter across the world uh, for that summer when it blew. So Tonga was small in that perspective, but Tonga was unique because it went through water, um, it increased uh, the water content of the stratosphere by 5%, which is enormous. I mean, it's just huge. When we think of human-caused climate change, we're talking about changes of two-tenths of a percent uh, to a, our atmosphere. But, uh, you know, the atmosphere is not a simple bubble of gas over the Earth. There's actually five layers. Okay. Tell you what. So we'll, we'll get into that after your yes. break. Yeah, we've got to take a quick break. Come right back with, uh, I hope you're taking notes. They're not going to be a test, but this is something you really need to know about. So I hope you're uh, at a place where you can pay attention uh, for the next 50 minutes, as long as Dr. Kolb is here. 721-1290 is our number. If you have a question or a comment, we'll be right back.
For over 100 years, Missoula's office. Okay, we are back on Talkback. 721-1290 is our number, right in the middle of a conversation. Uh, actually, if you will, a, a kind of a college-level lecture here about what's going on with the Tonga volcano. Go ahead, Doctor. Well, uh, okay, we, we're really discussing effects of volcanoes on our atmosphere and their impact on climate change um, and, and all of those things. And prior to the human-caused climate change discussion and science, uh, it was very well known that volcanoes had the singularly largest impact on our climate. Um, and it's it's actually the, typically the opposite, at least the immediate effects, because most of these volcanoes will blow a lot of ash and sulfur dioxide up uh, into the troposphere and, and uh, sometimes into the stratosphere. And that actually blocks and reflects sunlight. So we get volcanic winters, uh, and uh, there's a lot of research that have gone back, uh, and they have correlated changes to civilization and climate, recorded climate records to these volcanic outbreaks. And, of course, back then they attributed to acts of God and everything else. But uh, there were uh, there's a really strong correlation, for example, with Chinese di- dynasties and when they collapsed. And 62, there were like 68 collapses of Chinese dynasties, and 62 of those were directly correlated with major volcanic uh, um, um, explosions on the earth that caused uh, summer to be like winter conditions and massive crop failures. And, of course, when people are starving, there is huge political unrest, and they tend to overthrow their government at the time. So when we go back through history and we think of the Dark Ages and the Crusades and all of these things – a lot of them were connected actually with, with uh, uh, volcanic blasts that darkened the sky. And, of course, the people attributed that as a sign of God, right. uh, that they were unhappy and, you know, the world was coming in, which is also speculatively why the Aztecs and the Mayas worshipped the sun. Because their collapses also coincided right after a volcanic explosion where you didn't have a summer. And you had nothing but crop failures, and everybody was starving, and what it means the gods were mad at you. And so that's time for some human sacrifices here. Right. right. You know, so uh, we have had, the Earth has had these major climatic events due to volcanoes in the past, but it was usually cooling effects that occurred. And so the Tonga volcano is a little bit of an eye-opener because... Almost uh, when you go through history, and there's all sorts of data out on this, and studies have been done onto this. Uh, you know, I have a graph here that uh, of climate, and there's usually a major climatic drop after every major volcanic outbreak because of this increase of ash and sulfur dioxide in, into the atmosphere. That blocks the sun. That blocks the sun, and often the effects are five years long. You know, and not only that, all that ash, uh, it changed how solar eclipses are, are viewed and lunar eclipses. So, you know, in historical record, the monks and others wrote this stuff down that there were lunar eclipses where the moon disappeared. And of course, their interpretation was that the devil was, you know, doing this. And so, you know, society wasn't pious enough and, you know, on and on you go. But, you know, now we have a greater understanding of what's going on there. Um, so, but, uh, Volcanoes are incredibly complicated because you have the immediate effect of the sulfur dioxide and the ash, but then there are all of these other effects going on. And water vapor is probably one of the least studied and understood things in the atmosphere because it's so variable and so volatile. And water vapor is the biggest greenhouse gas we have in our atmosphere. Okay, and just think of this, you know, when we have cloud cover, you don't have the temperature extremes. When we have a clear sky, that's when we get 20 below zero. 
you know, because that's, that is the biggest thermal layer that's out there. And so when we talk about the atmosphere, uh, I mentioned earlier, there's, actually, there's five layers of the atmosphere. And, of course, the one that we live in is the troposphere that at the equator goes 20 kilometers high. But as you go further north, it's much shallower. It's only about 8 kilometers high. And to put that into perspective, you know, uh, our airliners um, uh, fly in the upper ends of the troposphere. Uh, Mount Everest is 8.8 kilometers high. And anybody who's ever studied or read anything about Mount Everest knows that the last half mile is known as the death zone. The atmosphere is too thin to sustain life. Uh, there's a handful of climbers that did it without oxygen, but they suffered serious consequences. Reinhold Messner, the famous mountaineer, lost all his toes and some of his fingers and just by luck got down. And Montana's own uh, Melissa Arno has climbed Everest, uh, the only woman uh, that is the second uh, woman to ever uh, climb Everest five times. And she's done it without oxygen as well. Uh, but it's you need help. Uh, so... You lose. You don't have enough oxygen to sustain life at eight kilometers. Uh, the troposphere is twenty kilometers high, and above that is the stratosphere. Okay, and so supersonic jets fly in the stratosphere. And as it's important, as you go higher, the density of the atmosphere exponentially decreases. Okay, so strat- so you can go faster. Well, certainly the jets can go faster. Right. So you know our, our our fastest jets, like the Blackbird, the SR seventy one does that in the stratosphere because there isn't that much uh, uh, atmosphere that provides friction against the plane. And so like we're talking about Top Gun, you know, a plane flying uh, close to sea level is going to fly very differently than in the upper end of the uh, of the uh, troposphere or in the stratosphere because it doesn't have as dense an atmosphere to work with. And so – and there's different temperatures to these because the, the density of the uh, molecules in that layer is what traps and reflects uh, and, and works on the thermodynamics, the temperature. So at night, the troposphere, upper end of the troposphere is minus 60 degrees on average. Okay, So that's you know uh, above Mount Everest type of thing. But once you enter the stratosphere, it actually warms up to zero degrees. Is the, is the average temperature up there. And so gases react differently, and this is where ozone and things like that are. Uh, you go up above the stratosphere at 80 kilometers to the mesosphere, it's at 85 degrees centigrade. That's a hot summer day here, okay? And this is where meteors, where we see the meteors, that's where they ignite. They hit enough oxygen to you start seeing the, the flaming out. You get up in the thermosphere, this is where the space shuttle goes to, uh, you know, and that's, that's uh, above 80 kilometers, the average temperature in this thermosphere is actually 1,500 degrees centigrade. You will cook out there. So when you see the astronauts out there in their space chutes, it's not to keep them warm. It's to keep them cold. They're in huge air conditioning units. And, of course, they have pressurized because without the, the pressurized spacesuit, your body would just explode because of the vacuum that's up there. But there's still, there's still molecules in there as part of in the magnetosphere of the Earth. And then you go up to the exosphere, which extends out to 700 kilometers out of the Earth. The average temperature of the exosphere is 2,000 degrees centigrade. And that's because you have all this solar radiation that's interacting with the molecules there. And it's enormous energy blast coming from the sun. So our atmosphere and our magnetosphere, okay, so that's the gravity and the, the, the uh, magnetic effect of the center of the Earth, um, deflects a lot of the solar radiation, Okay. If we wouldn't have that, that's why Venus is cooking hot because it doesn't have an atmosphere or a magnetosphere that's deflecting all this stuff. So when we talk about the effects going circling back to volcanoes that are blowing all this stuff in the atmosphere, uh, 
Uh, we have measured and we have historical records of the immediate effects of this uh, injection of sulfur dioxide uh, into the upper atmosphere and pumice and ash and all that stuff. But there are all these secondary effects. So like when all that ash comes down and lands on the snow, the polar ice caps, and see we, we can track old volcanoes by the ash layers that are in glaciers. You know, so all these ice cores and Antarctica and, and, and uh, uh uh, the Arctic regions where we have these glaciers, you take ice cores and you can measure historical atmospheric uh, uh, levels by, based on trapped gas bubbles. But you also find layers of ash that coincide with these major volcanic blasts that occurred. But when ash covers the snow, it changes the reflectivity of the Earth. So rather than the solar radiation hitting the snow and reflecting back off to the Earth, and that's why in the winter uh, we're, we're cooler because a lot of the solar radiation is reflected back. When you have a dark surface, all of a sudden it, it stays, it's absorbed. So the next effect of volcanoes is actually a warming because of uh, all of this increased radiation that's being absorbed by these ash-covered snow layers. And that affects rainfall events. And that changes the uh, water vapor content uh, in the troposphere, which then has a greenhouse effect. So, you know, figuring out what the total effect of volcanoes are is extremely difficult to do. Um, now, that said, well, we've got to take a break. We, we'll continue yeah, this on. We do have a break, and we also have a caller, and, and, but Emmett's enjoying this on, on the phone. So we're going to come right back uh, with more of Talkback. Dr. Peter Kolb, this is this is. Fascinating information. I hope you're paying close attention. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Bob Burton. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different... You drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. All right, we are back on TalkBack. 721-1290 is our number. Uh, Dr. Peter Kolb joining us here in the studio. And Emmett has been waiting quite a while. Emmett, I want to go ahead and get your, your, your call in because we're right in the middle of a, of a major treatise here with uh, Dr. Kolb. What's your question, sir? Well, it's very interesting. I really am enjoying it. But a few questions, well, a couple of questions anyway. Um, I was I'm reading on the bus the newspaper, and there was a disturbing article about the water supply in the southwest. For whatever reasons, the water levels in the rivers are getting less and less and less. There might not even be any water soon down in places like Tucson and Arizona and other places where I grew up in to even get drinking water you know, to, you know, from, a, from the tap. You just might you know, you know, have no water and die of thirst. I hope that's not true. I hope the doctor can answer, is this truly going on? But also, I guess we're talking about these volcanoes. Are we talking also about the volcano that just erupted over in Hawaii about a couple of weeks ago? Mauna Loa. Is, uh, I, how would, yeah, Mauna Loa, how would that affect the climate? Will that affect the climate? And those two questions. But also, I do have a comment. I'm a Roman Catholic and I know that volcanoes are causing these things, but I do believe it's still God's punishment if we have massive crop failures and that kind of thing, because I do believe that God uses, you know, the bad weather and things like volcanoes to give us chastisements or bad tornadoes or whatever. So I believe both in science and divine retribution. So that's, 
So if the doc can answer those couple of questions. All right. Thanks for the call. So, uh, uh, yeah. Well, climate cycles. Okay, so uh, this is nothing new. And the Southwest is highly vulnerable to these cycles. So the Anasazi culture down there uh, basically uh, collapsed because of prolonged drought. You know, if you ever been to Mesa Verde and those types of places? Uh, and because the Southwest is a lot warmer and, you know, it, it's very, very much influenced by changes uh, in climatic events, uh, El Nino, La Nina, and they have been in a prolonged drought. Now you add to that uh, these mega cities like Phoenix – that are getting most of their water from aquifers that have taken millions of years, at least thousands of years, uh, to fill. Um, and it's well known that they're drawing water at an unsustainable rate, and the level of those aquifers is dropping. I mean, the same in southern Idaho, where uh, massive irrigation has caused water levels to drop in certain areas. So these are, are well-studied events and, and well-understood events. And so this gets back to living sustainably within the ecosystem that you're in. And so in Phoenix and Tucson and those areas, uh, they have to conserve water and figure out how to use it in a, in a way that's sustainable. Are you following what's happening with the Euphrates River, which has never gone dry? And now major portions of that river, which sustains the life of that, of that almost that whole continent, are going dry. Correct. And uh, Northern Europe has had the same things. The Danube dropped to record levels. The Rhine dropped to record levels. And they actually recovered a lot of historic artifacts right. because they were underwater uh, all these years. Uh, so, yeah, climate change is a real phenomenon. You know, again, and the discussion is what's driving it. And the vast consensus is that human uh, human greenhouse gases are what's driving it. And, you know, there is very good evidence for that. So getting back to volcanoes, um Perusing the scientific literature, um, almost all of the climate specialists uh, consider volcanic activity as a steady state thing, okay? And when you look at the outputs of CO2, a major greenhouse gas from volcanoes, uh, it can be significant by an event. But compared to human emissions of CO2, which is measurable based on the fossil fuel use that we use, because we know how much – we have good records of how much we produce and how much we burn every year. Um, volcanoes put out less than 2 percent of the annual CO2. You know, and, and you know, there's – like I said, there's all sorts of interesting studies on this. And, and one of them shows an increase in volcanic activity over the last 200 years, actually uh, somewhat at the same scale as the, the graphs you see of global warming. But uh, when they look at that, are we – are the volcanoes actually putting out more or are we more capable of observing these? Because when they looked at World War One, World War II, uh, volcanic outputs vastly decreased. And it's what that is as an artifact is because we we're preoccupied. We actually weren't measuring them. And as we become more of a globally aware human population with communications, we can monitor volcanoes where historically – when a big one like Krakatoa blew up, it wasn't on record. When one in Antarctica blew up, nobody saw it. So, you know, this increase in volcanic activity has been basically defined as that's just we're more aware. That's why we're seeing more of this. Now, I I don't buy into simple explanations about things. Um, there are volcanoes are probably operate on cycles as well. And we have some centuries, decades, etc., where we have more volcanic activity than others. And so um, I, I don't discount volcanoes and having a profound impact on our climatic events. Uh, that said, 
Uh, you just got to look at a picture of the Earth at night with all the lights on and the human population and look at the figures of fossil fuel use and we're blowing an awful lot of stuff into the atmosphere and it would be silly to think it's not having an impact. So, uh, But most of the scientific literature, there's a pretty strong consensus, is that volcanoes have an effect on the climate, uh, but it's minor compared to what humans are, are doing. Now, is, do I take that at face value? No. Uh, so there's, you know, the Chinese Academy of Sciences came out and, and they measured changes in CO2 in the atmosphere before Tonga was 412 parts per million, after Tonga was 414 parts per million. That's one year's worth of human, green, human greenhouse gases emitted by Tonga, according to that source. Of course, you say, well, it's the Chinese. And, of course, they're interested in showing that humans are not having an impact right. on greenhouse gases because they are by far and large uh, the largest uh, producer of greenhouse gases. And with that, we're, we're going to take a quick break. 721-1290 is our number, 1-800-568-5309. This is, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm just sitting here on the edge of my seat, and I'm, I'm not even sitting down. So we're going to go right back with more of Talk Back right after this. Lucky Diamond Casino and Liquor Store has great... Two. Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic. Safe. Effective. Even money-saving, just like FDA-approved generic drugs. Even if they don't come in the exact same color or shape as their brand name equivalents, they have the same key ingredients and go through a rigorous review process. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist today and visit FDA.gov slash generic drugs. Generics are safe, effective, and can save you money. You'll like the sound of that. How is your job to school? Let me tell you. I had to get my iced coffee first. I just can't seem to put it down. My favorite rapper just announced a tour. My phone was buzzing like crazy. I'm so excited. I had to text all my friends right then to talk about it. Then someone started calling me and... Let's try that again. I turned my phone off right away. I never drive distracted. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Okay, we're back on Talk Back. 721 is our number. Dr. Peter Kolb joining us here in the studio. A treatise, if you will, uh, in, in the, in the one hour that we have to talk about this. Uh, it's, it's never enough time, but we do have, we like to get our callers on as soon as they, as they call. And I believe this is Dave. Dave, good morning. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning. You know, I, I was around for Mount St. Helen and the week it was really erupting bad. It was really hot that spring, but, uh, after that whole summer was, was, it never really got warm. It was like, it was like a chilly spring. But um, interesting thing, uh, the flowers came out from, from, and they had a huge, huge amounts of honey was collected that summer. And I, I'm wondering if it was the fertilizer, but uh, of the the Mount Saint Helen, and oh, about water. Uh, we we are pumping a lot of water from the ground that's that hasn't been. Uh, you know, above ground for a long time, could could irrigating pushing that water into the atmosphere have some imp- impact? All right, thanks, Dave. Thanks for the call. Well, in, in yeah. my opinion, uh, agriculture has a huge impact uh, because not only are we changing the albedo again that solar reflectivity of the Earth. So, if you have a field that's cured out grasses. That's kind of yellow in color. It's very reflective of solar radiation. If you have a plowed field, uh, it's a black body, so it absorbs almost all the solar radiation. Uh, irrigation, I mean, the number of center pivots that we've put in the United States, because uh, we need to produce food. I mean, we're one of the world's biggest food producers, and we're still not producing enough. Um, and, you know, the impacts of Ukraine, we've already talked about that on the radio a little bit as well. 
But uh, irrigating and throwing all that uh, water vapor in the air also has a huge effect, and locally. So the Bitterroot Valley and the Missoula Valley, if you get up early in the morning, you climb a mountain outside the valleys, and I have lots of time, and I have pictures of it, the whole valley is filled with fog. And that is mostly from all the irrigating that we do. And so when that fog layer uh, traps heat, and it it stays warmer uh, in the valley bottoms because of that. Um, it makes uh, plants more susceptible to fungal diseases. So we have a major fungal disease outbreak on Ponderosa Pines in the Bitterroot Valley and Missoula Valley. And that's because historically the average humidity in the summer here in these valleys was maybe 15%. And now it's closer to 50 to 60%. And that's fungal spores survive in that, whereas in the 15%, they don't. They go four feet and they die because it's too dry for them. So, yeah, um, there are lots of ways that we're impacting uh, climate and uh, volcanoes play their role in that. And again, usually after, right after volcanoes, it's a cooling effect. Um, now again, Tonga, not so much because it, it was an underwater volcano. And, you know, if you're not getting that ash or the sulfur dioxide concentration, which is also measured in these eight, uh, uh layers, even though, uh, Tonga did put out a lot of sulfur dioxide, uh, it's not measurable in the historical record. So whereas these land volcanoes, we have pretty good ash records of, underwater volcanoes are hard to track because they put out water vapor. Um, and so, you know, like I said, the Tonga explosion, in, in my eyes, uh, opened a door of science that we hadn't really considered that much before because it surprised everybody. Uh, nowhere in history has there been this much water vapor injected in the stratosphere. So we have no analog to this. And we were unaware that volcanoes could do something like that. Uh, so that, which makes the Tonga volcano so interesting and why there's actually a real lack of, of discussion about this because you have all these studies going on now uh, and they take several years to, to uh, gather the data and do the analysis and figure out what's going on there. So, uh, you know, it, it, it is a hallmark event because it, it's uh, opened our eyes to something that we probably had not considered as much before. Now, you had mentioned that this just occurred last year. Right. And so so a long-term a longitudinal study is not possible yet. It, it, uh, is, is there how, how long do you think it would take to get a longitudinal study of the effects of this? Uh, in, in other words, is that trapped up there or is it filtering down into the... Well, uh, there is a lot of people measuring this. The speculation is now that that water vapor will stay in the stratosphere for five to ten years. And the way you'll actually see this is there is this phenomenon. i got to get to my notes here so I pronounce it correctly. <laughs> uh, it creates what are called uh, noctilucent clouds. These are water vapor clouds that are 50 miles high up in the atmosphere. They're extremely rare. Uh, they're very cold, dry clouds. Uh, they don't give us rain or anything like that. But you see them in sunsets or it, it's uh, noticeable during the day when it's sort of a clear sky, but you see a shimmer up in the atmosphere. You know, so, th- you know, these these things are up there almost almost uh, not quite to the space shuttle, but, you know, they're up there a ways. And uh, the higher up you go, the harder it is to study. Um, you know, you can send hot air balloons up with measurement instruments, which is mainly what we do. Uh, of course, uh, historically, the space shuttle would measure these things. Uh, the space station measured those. But the space station is, is up there at 100 kilometers. So this area between our troposphere, where we can send balloons up and send planes up to gather gas samples, and the space shuttle, you know, it's extremely hard to study. It's extremely hard to measure. 
And so we're figuring that out. So initial thoughts were that the effects of the Tonga volcano would only uh, stay in the southern hemisphere because uh, that's where its circulation patterns are. But, you know, we have all these different circulation processes. And, again, the long-term effects is something that uh, we're, we don't know that much about. We're going to come right back. We have uh, Jeff who wants to be on the phone with you. We're going to come right back. Several lines open. And also, Dr. Peter Kolb joining us here in the studio. We'll be back right after this. Authentic New York. How is your job to school? Let me tell you. I had to get my iced coffee first. I just can't seem to put it down. My favorite rapper just announced a tour. My phone was buzzing like crazy. I'm so excited. I had to text all my friends right then to talk about it. Then someone started calling me and... Let's try that again. I turned my phone off right away. I never drive distracted. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Okay, we're back. Talk back rolls right along this morning. Only have about 18 minutes left here, and let's uh, get Jeff on the line. Good morning, Jeff. You're on with Dr. Cole. Go ahead, sir. Hey, good morning. An honor as always and a privilege. Um, considering uh, I have a question about uh, climate change, but it doesn't fall within the... Uh, anthropomorphic side of it, the man-caused side of it, because I think it's hubris to think that we're responsible for most of it, and I think it's also hubris to think that we have nothing to do with it. I think the answer lies somewhere in the middle. So, um, But the latest cycle in the uh, cycle of, uh, of ice age melting, you know, the, uh, the warming and thawing and then uh, refreezing of the Earth, started at the best estimate about Fourteen to 17,000 years ago. And at that point, the ocean levels were, they estimate, again, this is an estimation, but 120 meters lower than they are now. That's 400 feet lower. So over the last 17,000 years or so, the ocean has risen 400 feet, hiding uh, areas like Doggerland outside of uh, Britain, which used to be connected to the continent, um, you know, filling up the Mediterranean, which used to just be a series of puddles. And over that 17,000 years, uh, human beings have had the, uh, the resilience and the adaptability uh, to adapt to the changing levels. You know, cities were lost, new cities were found, uh, places got wetter, places dried out. And over that 17,000 years, we've adapted. And yet, now that we're approaching the end of that, cycle it looks like or at the end and actually going into the into the cooling phase we really don't know that either um seems like this last fraction of one percent that the human beings even with all of our technological advances and everything folks have their hands in the air and saying oh my god we can't cope with this and so i was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that that you know l- looking long term you know, 17,000 years of resilience versus 50 or 20 years of, oh, my God, we're going to die. <laughs> good question, Jeff. Thanks. Go ahead, Dr. Cole. Well, I mean, you bring up very many, many good points. And so the last 13,000 years is known as the Holocene. Okay, so when the – and so what you described is, is quite accurate. Um, and what most people don't realize is the first 7,000 years of that 13,000-year stretch was much, much warmer than it is now. Uh, so, um, you know, there was, there was a cooling effect. Um, as far as uh, ice age cycles are, I mean, the data is pretty clear that we're probably in the longest warm uh, stretch uh, in, in history. Uh, usually the warm periods uh, lasted about five to 10,000 years. And 
you know, we're, we're well past that, which is why, if you remember, recall back to the 70s, the big cry is we're going to go into another a new ice age and what are we going to do about it? Because we were, we're way overdue for one. Uh, so the bottom line is it's, it's very complicated. And I mean, that's a cop out answer. I understand. <laughs> but actually, the more you dig, the more you look into this. Uh, I mean, just as a simple thing is why does a tree grow the way it does in a certain location, which is really the, what started me on, on this whole path. Um, you get in the physics of it and you can write a hundred pages of all the different things that are going on on that single tree with regard to gas exchange and CO2 and respiration, effects of water and insects and diseases and soils and all of that. Um, the trick is for all scientists is to wade through this is one is not get totally fixated on one thing, which happens to be your area of study. And secondly, not make too big of predictions uh, because there's a huge level of error and uncertainty in everything. Now, the one thing that we are pretty certain about is that uh, human activity has contributed an awful lot of CO2 to the atmosphere. So, you know, we've gone from um, a background level of around 300 parts per million to about 412, 414 parts per million. And every year that increases. And that's measured at high elevation sites. Mauna Loa is one of them in Hawaii. That's currently shut down because, of course, it's uh, it's been fried because of all the CO2 that uh, the, the volcano has thrown at it. But we have monitoring sites around the Earth. Um, so we're, we're much better at measuring things. And you have to be careful about, is this a measurement artifact? Just because we didn't measure it before and we only have 30 years of data and we're seeing a 30-year trend, is this really a century millennial trend? Um, so wading through all that is, is very, very difficult. And uh, to simplify it in saying that we are doing this or we are doing that, I, I think is a failure. You, you, you can't raise political money that way, Dr. Gold. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we all see the effects of exaggerating uh, political positions. Uh, and I think the majority of people are not happy with that. Okay, I'm delving to social sciences now. But uh, nonetheless... Um, so there are, there are many moving parts in all of this stuff. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a climate change skeptic at a certain level because as a scientist, uh, the, one of the primary axioms as a scientist is question everything and keep questioning it. There is no such thing as settled science. There's settled physics because that's why planes don't drop out of the sky. We can calculate <laughs> and measure, you know, when iron melts and, and things like that. But in something as complex as our atmosphere, there's a lot of things. Uh, there is a disturbing trend, and the data is there, that we are contributing a lot to the atmosphere, uh, a lot of CO2, a lot of methane. Uh, and humans, through our uh, altering of the, of the Earth's surface and things like that, have a tremendous ability to affect our climate. You know, big cities that concrete heat sink, it doesn't cool down in those cities, you know. So you see it at a local scale, but when you, again, look at the population of people on the Earth, I think it would also be foolhardy to think that we're not having an effect. So the thing is to figure out how do we do things better. I mean, conservation is a great ethic. We want to keep doing things better, more efficiently, and having less of an impact, or at least a negative impact. We have positive impacts too. And a final word on the history of humankind, you know, yeah, we've been around for a long time. But as archaeological evidence shows, uh, we existed and uh, we procreated but life wasn't all that great. I mean, you think the average lifespan back in the Middle Ages was maybe 30 years of age. And when they dig up this stuff, uh, people suffered a lot. You know, so the concept of heaven 
was that there's something better after this also developed out of that because you know if 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 you're anything's better than this if you yeah if your daily life is awful you right. know what what do I have to look forward to. We're going to come right back. 721-1290 is our number. Well, heaven is a good place to take a break. So we're going to come right back <laughs> and uh, continue our conversation with Dr. Peter Kolb. Uh, we only have about eight minutes left. And by the way, Nick, this is uh, our last talk back for a while. Is that right? We'll be back on Monday. We'll but yeah, we Monday. will not have talk back uh, tomorrow. All right. Sorry. Right. Super. Right, we're going to come right back right after this. When it comes to real estate. Okay. We are back on talk back and uh, we're entering our, our last segment with Dr. Kolb here this morning. Uh, Dr. Peter Kolb uh, from MSU Extension, of course, also at the University of Montana. And uh, his office is located here in Missoula. And we really appreciate his expertise. I believe we're getting a phone call here. But let's continue on. Uh, we have exactly seven and a half minutes, Dr. Cole. Well, I'll, I'll throw this out, out to listeners, uh, maybe with a little bit of trepidation. Okay. Um, because uh, this spring, uh, I occasionally will lead tours to uh, Germany, uh, and they're forestry, history, and culture tours. Uh, so this uh, spring, uh, from uh, May 21st, until June 3rd, I'm leading a two-week study tour uh, to Munich, Germany, and we're going to go to Austria and then head north into uh, the German state of Thuringia, which is where Martin Luther translated the Bible from Greek into German. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks may not know this, but by doing so, he actually uh, created the spark for our Constitution because our Constitution is all about individual rights and that we are answerable to God and no one else. And by making Christianity and the Bible available to the common person, and Luther's thesis, his main thing was that a person's relationship with God is an individual thing, not through the king or queen, which is the way it was before and was a control thing, that the king or queens were born closer to God, Mm -hmm. and that's why they had that elevated position. So he upset the apple cart with that and actually formed the foundation of the idea that you're an independent thinking human being. So we're going to visit the castle where he, he did that translation, and that's in Thuringia, which was. Uh, so um, you got to get to Munich on your own. That's on your own dime. Uh, the two-week tour will run around four to $5,000. That's at cost. I'm booking hotels. I have room for maybe four more people on this wow, trip. I can wow. only I can only take about 18. Otherwise, it's too many. I can't book it. So I, I currently have plenty of people to do it, and I oh, – open this first to forest landowners and, and forestry professionals who have been through programs. But if you're serious and you want to do uh, go on this trip, uh, contact me and I'll walk you through the details. And it's first come, first serve. You know, so like I said, I got room for maybe four more people on this. So if there's uh, somebody who's who's really interested in doing this and going on this, I do all the translating. Um, and so give me a, give me a contact me and let me know. All right. Well, we, we, we have about five minutes left, so I, I believe people are calling in now. Uh, so how do we contact you? Uh, uh, well, give us phone number, email. What? How do we do Email. It? Okay. Right. Um, so don't try and leave me phone messages because <laughs> okay. I, I, I honestly don't do those because right. I'd spend the whole day on the phone. Okay. Uh, so peter.kolb, K-O-L-B, at umontana.edu. So letter U, Montana, one word, dot edu. Or just Google me. I mean, you'll you'll find me on the Internet. Right. Uh, so, uh, but let me know if you're seriously interested in this. Now, what are the dates again and how much? Okay, so it's the tour will start on Sunday. Well, Sunday is flying time, so May 21st. And we'll end it uh, on Saturday, uh, June 3rd. And I charter a bus. 
And we go from Munich down to Salzburg, uh, Austria for several days. Then we head north and we visit medieval cities, uh, Napoleonic fortresses, medieval castles. Uh, we talk with some forestry professionals mm-hmm. about what their philosophy is on climate change and forest management. And so I've just got an email back from the head of the Thuringian Forestry Department who is going to greet us and, and talk to us and show us the oldest existing forest uh, management office uh, in Thuringia. And so – and we're going to visit, you know, Air Force – the absolutely fantastic medieval city of Erfurt that wasn't bombed during World War II, so it's intact – uh, and it's uh, a lot of it, you know, land management is a cultural aspect. So we look at the history, the culture, and land management as it pertains to forestry. Let's get Ed on the line before we have to say goodbye. Ed, go ahead. What's on your mind? Yes, uh, the Tonga uh, volcano is a nice perturbation uh, of the uh, water vapor in the atmosphere. But we've had recently a perturbation of the amount of CO2 emissions. In 2020, uh, because of the pandemic, globally, the CO2 emissions went down about 5 or 6%. And that's a very large amount. And when they looked at the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, which you'd think might go down, there was absolutely no effect. So lowering CO2 emissions 5 or 6% will have no effect on the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And they predict it would have to be more like 50% globally to have uh, a what some people call the desired effect. So anyway, uh, what do you think about uh, the CO2? drop and uh, no effect on well there's a lag effect so co2 stays in the atmosphere for 10 to 20 years so two years of change of input into the atmosphere isn't going to affect the atmosphere because uh there's there's this there's a delay effect in this okay um you know so and this is again we have a lot of models these are complex calculations and mass calculations and you need supercomputers to handle the data you know so but that said, all models uh, are based on the assumptions you put into them. So it's a start to figure things out. So I, I wouldn't expect to see a change in the atmospheric CO2 after just two years. Um, but just like uh, after 9-11 in, in 2000, where all the planes were ground for a week, uh, we saw a warming, a general warming of one to two degrees of global atmosphere because we didn't have all the jet trails up there reflecting sunlight back in the atmosphere. You know, so it only lasted that week. Uh, but, you know, you think there's a million commercial airline flights a year. Think of that. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's almost unfathomable. So, um, again, you have to be careful, just like volcanoes, there's an immediate effect, then there's a slightly longer effect, and then there's a real long-term effect. And the longer you go, the harder it is to measure and quantify this stuff. So, again, I'm, I'm not surprised that, and, that there wasn't a change, a big change in atmospheric CO2 content just because, uh, and this is a concern about CO2, it stays up there for a while. Water only stays in the atmosphere for for a week to two weeks on average. Now, the stuff in the stratosphere will stay up there a lot, lot longer, and that's uh, another concern. Um, but, you know, CO2 has a longer-term effect, too. So you'd really have to have about five or more years of changes in CO2 emissions before you see an atmospheric change. Dr. Kolb, it is always a delight to have you. Thank you. And thank you for the cookies, too. Oh, you're welcome. Again, and, those are from my wife. And the, and the yummy needles. <laughs> <laughs> Almost forgot about I, those. I, I should have mm. taken pictures of your faces, but... <laughs>
Yeah. I kept my cool. Peter, on the other hand. Yeah, I, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm much, yeah, but I, I can't control myself like you can. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, Dr. Kolb, always a pleasure, and have a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. And the cookie recipes are on your webpage, is that yeah, correct? They yeah. will be, yep, this yeah. afternoon. Yep. All right, what's coming up uh, on Monday? Uh, yeah, no talk back tomorrow for those of you listening. Monday will be KGVO Book Club. All right, you guys have a great day. We'll see you uh, 